For truth and diversity come to Radio See Me. Hey everyone, welcome back to Radio See Me. I'm your host, Aliyah Ewing, and before we begin, I'd like to clarify some of the questions that many of you have been asking about during the last few months. So, as you're obviously aware, Radio See Me had taken a long hiatus, and this is for a number of reasons. First and foremost, to be completely honest, at the time that I first took a break from Radio See Me, it was because of significant mental health challenges. I know for many people, including myself, it's a really difficult topic to talk about, so I hope that you'll be understanding as we move forward. Secondly, I've been attending my university across the country and adjusting to a new time zone and a new culture really put a strain on my physical and emotional health. And finally, since I'm the sole editor and primary writer of all of our episodes, it takes me on average 10 plus hours for every 30 minutes of content that we release. As you can imagine, between jobs, school, and all my other local responsibilities, I simply didn't have the time or the energy to dedicate to this podcast. Unfortunately, the rest of my team was also going through similar struggles, and many of them have started attending their universities as well. Moving forward, I'm going to be simplifying the podcast to be more accessible to my needs and my time, so I apologize in advance for all of our future episodes being a little bit different than the ones you've grown accustomed to. The adjusted format will be primarily focusing on the interviews that I've already recorded to make this process easier for myself and allow me to still have the time to release episodes. The good news is that despite the hiatus Radio See Me took, I had still been conducting interviews throughout the months that we'd been off the air, so I have a long list of already recorded interviews with local county and city officials that are already prepped and ready to share. I would like to thank my family and Willie Lubka for reminding me how important it is to share information about local issues with the people of Ventura County. So this week, we'll be interviewing District Attorney Eric Nazarenko to answer some questions about his position and the Ignacio case from 2021 in Oxnard, a case where he was wrongfully convicted over a decade ago. Please keep in mind that Radio Simi is not a place where I, as the host, challenge any of my guests on the information that they share, regardless of my personal beliefs and opinions. That all being said, let's get started. The following interview does include sensitive content, so I'd like to give a trigger warning of sexual assault, rape, and child molestation. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Eric. You are the district attorney for Ventura County. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Great to be with you, Aaliyah, and great to be with your listeners and Radio Simi. I was appointed district attorney of Ventura County in January of this year, unanimously by the Ventura County Board of Supervisors. Prior to the appointment, I served as a senior prosecutor with the DA's office. My specialization was in sex crimes. I prosecuted primarily child molestation and rape cases. I had been a prosecutor with the office since 2008. Uh, I went to Loyola Law School at night before becoming a prosecutor, and before that, studied history at the University of California at Irvine. What is the purpose of your role within Ventura County? I am considered the top prosecutor of the county. And what that means, we receive over 15,000 cases from various law enforcement agencies every year. And this is from infractions to misdemeanors to very serious and violent felonies. And as the district attorney of Ventura County, you administer an office of 288 employees. 103 of whom are deputy district attorneys, another 55 are sworn peace officers, that's our Bureau of Investigations. They provide support for attorneys in terms of gathering evidence, 
performing follow-up interviews of witnesses and victims, but they also assist with very complex workers' compensation, environmental crimes, and automobile insurance fraud cases. And then we have victim advocates who support victims in court, who explain the process to them, assist with restraining orders, assist them with counseling and therapy, assist them with getting short-term housing, reimbursement with medical bills and hospital expenses. And then we have our wonderful support staff who are really the backbone of the office. They help make sure the files are in the right courtroom, the attorneys have the proper case numbers, and they really just make sure that our witnesses are under subpoena. We have the right people in the database at the right time. When you're in your position, when do you interact with the public? Quite often, Aaliyah, one of my objectives when I took the appointment was to be engaged as much as I could with the cities in the county, with rotaries, with business groups, with law enforcement organizations, with social justice organizations, because I really believe that the district attorney needs to be outward. That is an individual who is outside of the courthouse and the office. So for example, I have now spoken to seven of the 10 city councils in the county of Ventura. I have three more, uh, the city of Ojai, the city of Moore Park, uh, as well as the city of Ventura. Thereafter, I will reach out and speak to school districts to talk about uh, best practices in juvenile prosecution, to talk about restorative justice. And I also want to make sure that I'm listening to the county. I want to make sure that I'm listening to the communities that we represent, because when we do that, we build trust and confidence in law enforcement, and ultimately we build trust and confidence in the decisions we make. What is the chronological process that it takes for your job? Like, does a case get brought immediately to you? Does it get brought to somebody else? Then it goes through um, a processing system where it eventually gets to you. Great question. I have one case that was mine when I was in the sex crimes unit. It has a very sensitive victim, so I've retained that case. The rest of my caseload has gone to other attorneys in the office, but our office is divided into units. So for example, we have a misdemeanor section which will receive misdemeanors submitted typically by police departments, but it can also be the sheriff's department. It can be California Fish and Game. It can be other law enforcement entities. And then we have different units that have specializations. I mentioned the one that I came out of, which was sex crimes, but we have a narcotics unit. We have a gangs unit. We have a homicide unit. We have units that deal with fraud or what are called paper-based cases. We also have a juvenile unit and we have a unit that handles real estate crime. So these are typically brought to us by other law enforcement agencies, but not always, Aaliyah. There are instances where our own Bureau of Investigations, that is the 55 investigators that I mentioned earlier, will actually be the lead entity investigating, reviewing, interviewing witnesses, and gathering material for a potential criminal filing. One example of that would be public integrity cases. What I mean by public integrity cases, let's say, for example, we get a accusation, an allegation of corruption among another government entity or official, or somebody has a complaint about whether or not the open meetings law in California was properly followed. 
we have investigators as well as attorneys who specialize in those types of allegations. And then also we may get a accusation of somebody who is committing uh, child pornography, or perhaps they're committing some type of embezzlement or financial fraud. Those crimes too, in some instances, would be investigated initially by the DA's office. What case are you most proud of from your past? People versus Thomas Bork. I'll tell you and your listeners why. This was a multi-victim child molestation case. When it got to trial, there were four named victims, uh, some of whom were minors, others of whom had become adults. And there were also a number of what we call uncharged victims. They were uncharged because the statute of limitations had expired. Because of the amount of time that passed between when the crime occurred and when it was prosecuted, we could no longer name them as victims and obtain convictions, but we could nevertheless use what happened to them to show the court, show the jurors, that there were common features of this molester's crimes, uh, certain grooming techniques, certain ways in which he gained uh, the trust of these vulnerable victims. And I mentioned this case in particular because two of the victims were foster youth who sadly and tragically were placed into the defendant's care as foster children. And the case was very special and important to me because I was able to develop strong working relationships with the victims and their family. And just to give you a sense as to when the first crime occurred, I called as my first witness a woman in her mid-50s who testified to the defendant beginning the period of molestation in 1970. And unfortunately and tragically, his crimes occurred for another 40 years. He was finally arrested in 2010. And I'm very proud to say on behalf of justice in the county, he is now serving a 125 year to life sentence in state prison. Wow. How old is he now? He's in his 70s, Leah. Jeez. And congrats for also winning your case. That's so impressive. Why did you get into attorney business? When I was an undergrad at UC Irvine, I read a nonfiction book called Helter Skelter. This was written by a former LA County prosecutor about his prosecution of Charles Manson for a number of murders that happened in the late 1960s. I was a junior in college, Aaliyah. I was just riveted. There was something about how dynamic and just honorable his work was that really appealed to me. So it was an undergrad that I decided I wanted to pursue a career as a prosecutor. Now, I ended up working right after undergrad for a number of public school districts, assisting them with their community outreach, helping them to build new schools and renovate existing ones. So it wasn't until my early 30s that I went to law school at night and continued to pursue my dream of becoming a prosecutor. I'm happy to say that it did happen. And uh, by the time I was in my mid to late 30s, I had fulfilled my dream.
Would you mind telling me a little bit about the Ignacio case in Ventura County? When I first took the job as district attorney, I was presented with a report by a senior attorney in the office who said that there were a number of search warrants that inadvertently, uh, accidentally, were never provided to the defense at the time of the trial. The trial was in 2010. And under law, uh, we have an obligation to provide to the defense prior to trial any evidence that may be exculpatory or material. Exculpatory is kind of a big word for just, hey, could this evidence be helpful in showing that they may not have been uh, the person who committed the crimes. So these search warrants, uh, by, now, by no fault of either the prosecutor or the police department, were not provided. So my first decision was, I need to reverse this conviction. There was evidence that didn't make it to the defense. I have a legal obligation to make sure that this conviction does not stand. So that was my first decision point. My second point was to determine whether or not the case should be retried. Um, Mr. Ixta had been in prison and I had to make a decision again, do we commence a second prosecution? So I had a senior homicide and gang prosecutor review the state of the evidence to look at whether or not we had sufficient statements regarding identification and other corroborating material to prove he had done the crime. And the recommendation of the senior prosecutor was we did not. The state of the evidence was simply insufficient to move forward. Therefore, the case did not go forward and we were legally obligated to release Mr. Ixta. If you don't mind me asking, if there wasn't sufficient evidence to persecute him now, why was he convicted in 2010? It's a very fair question. When we looked at the case from a 2021 perspective, we had to take into account that certain laws had changed that would have made it more difficult to proceed. Obviously the law is dynamic, it's not static. There were certain changes in the introduction and use of evidence that would have made it much more difficult in 2021 than it was in 2010. Uh, we also found that there were just issues regarding statements that we wanted to put forward right now uh, and whether or not we would be able to do so, whereas 11, 10 years ago, we could. So we had to say to ourselves, where we are, we don't have enough, we can't proceed, the state of the evidence is insufficient, let's do the right thing and make sure that this case does not go forward. Why was the information just brought up? The answer is defense attorneys for Mr. Ixta learned about the search warrants and then they brought it to our office's attention. So this was information that was learned by some defense attorneys. Uh, they did their due diligence in turning it over to us. And then we went ahead and did our due diligence to perform the review and investigation. Um, so as soon as we were in receipt of the new material, uh, we went ahead and made reversal uh, a priority. And then, as I just mentioned, we decided not to go forward. Do you think that um, the situation with Ignacio reflects a larger issue within our local criminal justice system? I don't. Um, 
I think it's an aberration. You know, I've tried 63 cases to verdict. I've been in front of multiple juries. And when you have search warrants that are not directly related to the case at the time, but become known years later, that's an unusual circumstance. That's not typical. So I don't see this as something that is part of a broader pattern or practice. But nevertheless, we have to make sure that we gather all evidence, that it's turned over appropriately, um, that whatever is in the possession of the police agency is deemed to also be in the possession of the prosecutor. So we have to make sure that we take very affirmative steps to get that information over. And what I am doing right now is one, I'm looking at our, our network to see how do we make sure from a technological standpoint, when these outstanding search warrants exist, they'll be known to the prosecutor so he or she can discover them. Uh, it's basically using technology as it exists today to have a cross-reference system. So before you go to trial, you will have on your computer monitor the fact that search warrants existed, identifying crucial witnesses in your case that you're about to try. Therefore, you can ask the police for those search warrants. In 2010, Aaliyah, we didn't have that capability. I believe we will. What steps um, is the district attorney's office taking to make sure that they are being more inclusive of queer people, people of color, and any other people who might not necessarily have been properly represented in the district attorney's office before? Thank you for the question. When I became the district attorney, I named a Asian American Pacific Islander as my chief assistant. That's the number two in the DA's office. That broke ground. That made history. She is the first Asian American Pacific Islander woman to be in that role. Similarly, we have a beautiful county of 43% Latinx. It was very important to me to bring in, as part of my management team, somebody of Latinx heritage and descent. I was very proud to bring in a talented prosecutor from LA County, Paul Nunez. He too broke ground and made history. He's the first Latinx chief deputy in our county's history. And why is this important? It's important because Paul, for example, is the grandson of farm workers. He will look at his cases, those he manages from a broad perspective, uh, including the perspective of his heritage and how he grew up. I believe he'll bring a level of sensitivity and fairness because of his upbringing. And similarly with Lisa, as an Asian American Pacific Islander female, she's experienced hate crimes. Uh, she has been a victim of disparaging racist remarks. So sadly, we're seeing somewhat of an uptick in hate crimes in the county. And I believe by having someone like Lisa as the number two role, that she can bring a lot of insight, a lot of information, and just a lot of personal stories to those prosecutions. We also are going through a hiring process right now. And when I believe it is over, Aaliyah, it will be one of the most diverse in um, our county's history. Uh, one individual is uh, an African-American female, uh, the other is coming from a, another prosecutor office. 
where he was part of the LGBTQ plus uh, group within that office. Another speaks both Arabic as well as Spanish. So this will be a really diverse group that we're bringing into the district attorney's office. These are talented men and women. They come from other prosecutorial offices for the most part. They've done trials, they've served victims, they've been able to deliver justice, and I'm excited that they're coming to Ventura County. What goals do you have for the future, either relating to racial justice, social justice, anything like that, regarding the future of the district attorney's office? Thank you. One of the most important issues to me is mental health and addiction. And what I mean by that is I believe that all government entities, the public, and even the private sector need to look for new approaches, new ideas, better intervention strategies for addressing mental illness and addiction. Oftentimes, mental health and addiction are together. Sometimes they are not. This is both professional and personal to me. In my professional capacity as a DA, I believe there are opportunities for us to divert low-level offenders to treatment, to support, and intervention. I believe very strongly that one of the best ways to ensure public safety is to make sure that people do not recidivate, meaning they don't commit repeated offenses. One way to do that is through medication-assisted treatment if they have some type of psychological disorder or mental distress. Another way is making sure they're under psychiatric care. And of course, another way is to make sure that when they're in acute distress, that they have resources, that they are at a crisis stabilization chair or an inpatient psychiatric bed. So this is very personal to me. I lost a loved one who had suffered in her life from both mental illness and addiction. So obviously my own personal experience informs this new approach what I'm doing in the office is creating the first ever mental health unit. I'm very grateful to our board of supervisors for giving me two additional prosecutors to be a part of this dedicated mental health unit. And what they will do is look for new strategies, new approaches that will help end the incarceration of the mentally ill and also provide them with far reaching treatment and assistance within the systems that we have already in the county. And perhaps they will help identify new ones so we can provide funding and support for them in our future as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap this up? I think you've covered Aaliyah, thank you. Uh, And thanks for the opportunity. Of course, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you take care now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to episode 19 of Radio Simi, the first episode of season three that'll be focusing on recorded interviews. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Simi. And if you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel. We also do have a Patreon that I'd like to thank Grant Keller for supporting us on since day one. And if you're interested in asking our future interviewees your own questions, as well as getting more content than what we already provide for free, please sign up at patreon.com slash radio All of our episodes are on Spotify, Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and YouTube. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.